on this month's TJ podcast, Joe and I look at all the relevant news stories to L&D. Uh, we put millennials on trial and I talked to Penny Asher about, about a global learning strategy. Hi everyone and welcome to the TJ podcast, the monthly podcast of trainingjournal.com and TJ magazine, the only magazine dedicated to L&D in the UK. I'm John Kennard, editor of TJ and I'm joined by my co-host Joe Cook. Hi everyone, I'm Deputy Editor of TJ, I'm an online learning facilitator and general enthusiast of webinars. So John, how are you today and are you ready to jump into some L&D news and views? Yeah, I think so. We've, uh, we seem to have settled on a format which uh, has worked pretty well, so we're going to uh, jump into a few news stories and see what's been going on around in the world of L&D um, and associated technologies, I guess. So the first story is from Prospect magazine. Uh, it was a write-up of a recent talk at the British Academy, um, and this is going to be a theme that we come back to a couple of times over the course of the podcast, which is about uh, AI, robots, etc., etc. The title was, Can Humans Benefit from Robots in the Workplace? To give some context, the first couple of paragraphs. This is a topic that I've certainly thought about a lot, said Tamindra Harkness, chairing a British Academy debate on the 22nd of March. Will humans be helped or replaced by robots in the workplace? A solicitor she spoke to recently said he felt sorry for steel workers losing their jobs to robots. She broke the bad news that there exists a bot for contesting parking tickets. Not quite the same, I'd say. But anyway, uh, the key question was, what are the benefits and to whom will they accrue? And what can we do to affect how these things play out? So, as is the style with, with, with roundtables and je- debates in general, there are numerous points of view. Uh, we had Judy Wiseman, a sociologist at LSE, Daniel Suskind, an economics fellow at Oxford, and um, Sabine Howart, uh, who's an assistant robotics professor at the University of Bristol. And depending on their point of view, obviously, some were saying that it was... Uh, People, the, the robots would take over, people would be losing their jobs. A phrase that I thought was uh, quite amusing was, or a new term, sorry, was cobots, collaborative robots that work alongside humans. This was from uh, the work at the University of Bristol. Apparently they have a thousand coin-sized robots, uh, which they use to uh, do things like environmental monitoring. She was talking about surgeons who use nanoparticles for improving the treatment of cancer. So there's a lot of Positives, obviously, but there's some uh, scepticism too. Joe, what do you think? I think it's some really interesting stuff in there and good to bring all those different views together. I think it's really interesting because there's a lot of stuff around robotics coming and changing our jobs. So someone to go and look up if you want to think more about the future of work and what our jobs might be is Harold Yarkey, J-A-R-C-H-E at yarkey.com. He's a really nice, lovely Canadian guy that talks a lot about this area. And it's not so much that we're going to be living a life of leisure necessarily, but that the job roles that we do as humans are going to change into the things that robots can't do. Well, I've been doing some writing about this uh, myself and and one of the more philosophical points of view that I've come across is if robots do replace certain human jobs, is that actually a bad thing? We may not need to work... This is quite far in the future, I'd say, but we may not need to work as much because we may not need to earn as much because previously expensive aspects of life are now a lot cheaper for example supply chain optimization 3d printing will bring down the cost of things so we may actually be living a life of leisure in future i know this is a little bit optimistic but there we go and also joe one last thing on this story uh, i never knew it was pronounced yaki i always thought it was jarky well there you go you learn something new every day here at tj john it's true it's true 
So the next story is from Forbes, uh, a very Forbes type story this, unsurprisingly. Three key business leadership lessons in the era of fake news, um, a classic Forbes listicle. Uh, for those who haven't heard the term listicle before, it's basically a list article and uh, portmanteau of those two words uh, makes a listicle, uh, something else, something that uh, is BuzzFeed stock in trade as well, I'm sure you've seen them around. But yeah, fake news, I mean the, the it's a term, it's a very current term, popularised, of course, by probably predominantly the Trump administration um, in leading up to the recent election. But really, it's something that we have been dealing with for a while. Um, I'll just read out the per- first paragraph or two and um, you'll see what I mean. We're all familiar with the term fake news by now. We know it started catching momentum during the 2016 presidential election, etc., etc. Second paragraph. While the term may be new, its underlying definition is not. Fake news is just the timeless attempt to defeat one's opponents by discrediting them through lies. So then it puts it through the paradigm of leadership and what leaders can and should do with the uh, prospect of fake news. The first thing is about uh, accountability and transparency. All very sensible. The second part is about critical thinking and an embrace of cognitive dissonance. The idea of holding two opposing ideas in your head um, is very important. But the third thing, which is is uh, plays into a lot of what we're talking about, especially later on in the podcast, L&D on Trial, is about paying attention to young people because apparently they have the hardest time discerning what is fake news. So for me, the outcomes are kind of common sense but nevertheless should be reiterated which is around using multiple sources to source stories be skeptical question things apply scrutiny don't jump to conclusions what do you think joe completely agree with everything you're saying and i think possibly to to use a massive stereotype that's why often younger people aren't necessarily focusing on that so much because that idea that that kind of we're used to and we're trying to promote to people of going and finding sources and questioning what you see in the media is perhaps a a newer uh, newer idea i also find it really interesting that you know this term fake news has come about because president-elect donald trump as he was in january of this year denied a CNN reporter, uh, Jim Costa, a question. And he's the one that said to to Jim Costa, your fake news of CNN. And having worked with CNN, I find that a little bit offensive, it must be said, uh, one of the the leading news outlets in the world. Um, I think it's a really interesting area around this fake news and the accountability and the critical thinking are important, whatever paradigm you put it through. And this is just one of those. So, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Something to be aware of, but um, as someone who receives numerous press releases on a daily basis, let's say angled towards certain points of view, I think um, I'm kind of used to questioning these things, but um, maybe not everyone is, but you should be. Okay, Joe, what's this uh, next story all about? So the next story is from the BBC, and it is eight ways intelligent machines are already in your life. And I think this is a really interesting take on this, because especially if we go back to that Prospect magazine piece about the uh, the cobots, the, the kind of the coin-sized robots that are working in collaboration with us, this is all about the fact that intelligent machines are already here. So many people are worried about it, rightly so. There's a lot of things we need to, to think about. Um, 
Um, but so many people have that kind of terminator view of, of the future in their mind. And they're worried that technology and AI is going to take over. But this article shows it's all, it already has but it's almost behind the scenes. It's almost really subtle. It's in the kind of ways that probably people like my mum and, and dad would never think about, but actually are really there. So again, I hate to make sweeping statements. Is it a generational issue that people are worried about? Are younger people more used to this and therefore they feel it's okay? Are older people worried about the kind of the personalization of everything and actually taking away their privacy? I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'm let's uh, stay away from generational stereotypes for the moment, but um, yeah, there's certainly a lot of technological automation already out there, and I think I think a lot of it's semantics. I think people are scared is patronising, but there's concern around certain terms that are being used. Even AI is something which concerns people when you don't really think about, for example, in within this article about how your shopping basket uh, or your online shopping basket at least is that companies like Amazon use um, propensity modelling and, and, and that sort of thing, and the idea of suggestion through algorithms, which can be very, very useful, of course. Maybe there's elements of... I know certainly that my dad, who was an, or is and was an early adopter of certain technologies, has grown quite sceptical of the way that things are going. For example, they have their, they've been ex-directory <laughs> for years with their phone, which is... Hardly the same, but also I think they, they had their house removed from uh, Google Street View, um, which is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an ongoing debate. Uh, one of the things that I'll always remember from L&D events was Learning Technologies 2012, and Jaron Lanier and Ray Kurzweil were the two keynotes, and they had exactly opposing, diametrically opposite points of view about... Um, about AI and the possibilities of taking out, you know, the idea of the, the singularity 2022, I think was the year quoted at the time where robots would start self-replicating. And Jaron Lanier said, uh, another polymath type said, uh, no, this is impossible. Robots will always need humans. So I don't know. The debate rages on. Absolutely. And it brings us nicely on to our last piece which is some new research by uh, from smallbusiness.co.uk. And it says, new research reveals workplace stress map of the UK, which, which I find quite ironic because there actually isn't a picture of a map in, in the news article that I'm reading. Um, but it does tell us about the way that stress is dealt with in the workplace and, and kind of burnout and all of those kind of issues that as an organisation people should be focusing on, but also kind of touches on the role of L&D, OD, HR and so on. I found that actually this is very UK based, but actually there wasn't the greatest amount of UK regional variances. They do list some stuff. Sometimes there's a few percent difference. Sometimes it's a little bit more. For me, this piece is actually about two things. And it relates back to what we were saying about that fake news item. This is not fake news. I'm not saying that necessarily. But where is the information about, for instance, the amount of people asked or, the, or what we call the sample size? You know, if this is a few hundred people, does that have the same impact as a few thousand people? So, so that's really important. I couldn't see any of that information in there. And, you know, who sponsored it, who, who paid for this research, basically, is always useful to know when looking at any kind of research. And the second thing is actually, well, when we look at this point about stress and burnout, well, how can we deal with this? How can we support people in the business to ensure that these statistics 
go down, that we are dealing with less burnout and less stress. Some of that can be with things like working from home, but we both know, John, that we work from home and that causes other stresses. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that need to go on here. There, there are a huge, huge amount of variables, but really good point on um, not listing the sample size. I think it's very, very important. If you're going to then launch into an article, that the thrust of which involves percentages of certain areas of the country behaving in a certain way, then it needs to be cited properly, and you need to get an idea of how many people you're dealing with. It can't be in the hundreds. It should be in the thousands at the very least. And, um, and then also, this is just a stylistic thing for me. We're kind of going into journalism territory rather than L&D, but I would offer some kind of tips and advice at the bottom of this article. It, I mean, fine, it's listing what the, the, the statistics that they found and the trends that they've observed, but it would be quite good at the bottom to have three or four bullet points to just go, do this, do this, do this, or, or here's a number to call, you know. These are the people you can be speaking to. That, would, for me, would be a good proactive way to end a feature like this. But um, yeah, I mean, it has a couple of links to other stuff, but it's not in the article itself. You've got a point there. So there we go. That was the news. So let's talk about this month's magazine. Uh, the subject is neuroscience and learning. Our spotlight interview is Alexandra Bode Tunji of TFL, who talks about her business transformation journey and drive to succeed. Uh, puns, oh, John, what a pun. <laughs> puns intended, puns intended. <laughs> Our lead features from uh, Pern Candela's Stuart Duff on empathy and leadership. And uh, Joe, what does Cook look at this month? What does Cook look at? I uh, focus very much on that neuroscience element again. And what I write about is that just because, for instance, you've got a picture of a brain scan or you've got a statistic quoted, again, going back to our news items, it doesn't mean that something is scientifically robust or empirical is the word that we use. Ultimately, I point out there isn't an easy catch-all for understanding learning uh, for any of those kind of things. It's a, such a complex area and we just need to focus on one bit at a time. Yeah, uh, elsewhere, Ian Robertson uh, certainly destroyed a few of my preconceptions about neuroscience. Uh, Don Taylor talks about the importance of being wrong, or at least admitting defeat with good grace. And, uh, of course, we are the only monthly magazine dedicated to L&D in the UK. And what do people have to do to subscribe, Joe? It's easy. Like all things TJ, just heading to trainingjournal.com is the first port of call. There are magazine subscriptions and also a digital-only version where you get access to the digital magazine three months before it's unlocked for everyone. Cool. So next we come to webinars. What, uh, what did uh, the webinar this month have in store for us, Joe? We focus on neuroscience and we had the question of how can we apply neuroscience to the workplace because I think you know theories and research are absolutely brilliant but until you actually know what to do with them in your classroom in your learning design you know they are they're kind of a little bit highfalutin for some people including myself so our webinar this month was all about that we spoke with Stella Collins who wrote the book neuroscience for learning and development we also had Gary Luffman who's an occupational psychologist and lastly gosh getting up very early in the morning our webinar was 2 a.m for Margie Meacham she's in the USA and she wrote the book Brain Matters and if you missed the discussion which was really really good don't worry the recording is available via our webinars page well yes the wig is out sort of and uh, we're going to do another L&D on trial what are we going to put in the doc this month well 
we're not just going to we're going to put several thousand million people in the dock this month in fact it's the turn of millennials so how are we going to go about this so, so we're not actually putting millennials themselves in the dock though are we john well yeah i mean this is this is a difficult one so i've chosen to prosecute the idea of not the idea of millennials. Well, maybe the idea of millennials. Certainly the the character traits that people ascribe to millennials. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. I must admit the defence, as such that I am, I've prepared around the, the, the use of the term millennials because so many millennials, uh, or sometimes known as Generation Y, really don't like being called a millennial. So I'm kind of defending the point of actually the term millennial is a good thing. Okay, well, maybe you should start because you sound like you've organised it better than I have. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but I will definitely do my best. And I, I think it's really worth saying on any of our L&D tiles is John and I kind of basically flip a coin to decide who's going to prosecute, who is going to defend. So these don't always necessarily um, show our exact views ourselves, but it's stuff that we've gone and research to make an argument. And uh, seeing as John lost, uh, was it learning styles last month, I think it's only fair that I defend the use of the term millennials. So it's a basically it's a demographic cohort. Uh, generation X is the generation above that, and you would have heard of things like baby boomers and so on. There aren't any precise dates for when this cohort starts or end. Generally, researchers use the early 1980s as the starting point for when a millennial was born through to the mid-90s, early 2000s. So if you were born in the year 2000, you would still be called a millennial. And actually, this came through from authors William Strauss and Neil Howe. They're usually credited with naming the millennials in 1987. And they were talking about the time that children were born around 1982. They were entering preschool. The media were first identified identifying perspective link to the new millennium as high school graduating classes of 2000. So that's kind of where, where that came about. So I think it's some really interesting points here. And a recent study from Pew Research found that only 40% of millennials identify with that term millennial, whereas nearly 80% of those who are in the 51 to 69-year-old kind of cohort, they consider themselves the baby boomer generation. So it, it was really interesting, actually, because most young people I meet actually prefer their generation not to have a title at all, don't like that term millennial. Um, but in terms of having a look at why we have the generational term, I think the Pew Research article goes on really well to have a look at the fact that age denotes two important characteristics about an individual. It's their place in their life cycle, so whether they're a child, young adult, middle age, whether they're retired, and also it's their membership of what they call a cohort, the group of individuals who were all born at around about a similar time. Now, that similar time could be 15 or 20 years, but, you know, it's it's not the same as being uh, born in, in the time of 15, uh, sorry, 30 or 50 years uh, split. So whilst, you know, younger adults will have different views at any different moment to other groups, I think it's really interesting that it's how, if you look at this kind of longer term as opposed to just the term millennial, it's a great way to describe how people's views differ across age cohorts and actually through their life cycle. And there was some research that found that millennials are less engaged in politics today, for instance, than older generations. And that's something that probably a lot of us know instinctively or we've seen certainly 
um, some reporting about. But actually, the point that they make in this Pew Research was the same was true of baby boomers in their youth. So this is partly to do with that life cycle, rather than just saying, oh, millennials are never going to be engaged in politics, because they're saying that usually changes over time and age. So I, I thought there were some really good points there made about why we should categorise people. And, um, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, John. That last point's a really good one, actually, about it being a life stage rather than anything else so that at the same age you'd probably be as disenfranchised with politics for example but i don't know if i believe that so one fundamental thing that you so sorry who invented the term millennial according to your research according to my <laughs> research it was this was on wikipedia was william strauss and neil howe okay so that's as maybe i believe that but um Millennials are also called digital natives, or have been called digital natives, although this seems to be a term which has fallen away a little bit. Uh, Millennials, certainly when I first encountered the term, uh, it was while I was working in L&D, but probably near the start of it, so probably five years ago, six years ago. It's definitely now been embraced wholesale by the media as as a way to sort of describe uh, a, a huge cohort of people. But Digital Natives was actually invented by a pedagogical leader called Mark Prensky. Here's my main argument against millennials. We love to simplify. We love to compartmentalise. This is an extremely large cohort of people and one that is way, way, way too large to generalise about. It's too westernised. It's too specific to uh, capitalist countries, for starters. It's reductive, uh, it's stereotyping. As people, we like to explain behaviour, regardless of whether we work in L&D or whether we work in psychology. We like to be able to explain behaviour. It gives us comfort. But, for example, the idea of the teenager didn't come about till the 1950s. Before the 1950s, there was only children and adults. Teenagers came about for advertising purposes, and that was when uh, the term was popularised, and and suddenly we had this invented um, idea of... uh, from the age of 13 to 20 or 13 to 19. And now, possibly for advertising purposes, who knows, uh, we, are, we have a further fragmenting of young adulthood. This labelling of people, it leads to lazy usage to explain trends. I understand that if you're born between a certain year and another year, and, and another year you have this bracket, by, by the way, which no one can decide upon. Pew Research says 1977 to 1992. Uh, other people have said 1980 to 2000, 82 to 96. No one really knows. And if you're on the borderline, who are you? Are you a Generation X? Are you Generation Z? You know, the generation after millennials. And then what characteristics are you, are you supposed to uh, exhibit? It's ridiculous. It's almost as bad as star signs. Trying to somehow trying to ascribe behaviours. <laughs> it is. Oh, I'm not sure I agree with that. But carry on, carry on. Somehow trying to ascribe behaviours to a twelfth of the world's population is not going to work. And just to compound all this, depending on whether you're a fan or not, I'm personally not a fan. But I don't know if you saw Simon Sinek's recent video that went viral on Facebook a couple of months ago, and he was. Uh, he was saying things like, these, these people are so needy they're, because their parents have told them that uh, they're always going to be amazing. They're, co- they're constantly looking for reinforcement in their work. It was the most patronising thing I've ever heard. And I got really, really angry, especially when people were sharing it and people posting comments like, oh, so true. A hundred emoji. That's a really interesting point, John. And that video angered a lot of people. But does it just go back 
to backing up my point about it's to do with the life cycle of where you are. It's not to do with being a, quote, millennial, but it's to do with being maybe a younger person with less life experience. But then you will always be a millennial, even if you get older, by, by definition. But again, the Pew Research is saying your views will change over time. So, you know, just as baby boomers would have been uh, less politically interested when they were teenagers or young people, then that has changed and a millennial will change. So it's just a way of categorising a certain age group. Yeah. OK. But then why call them millennials? Because it was in the run up to the millennium of when they would be finishing high school. But why call That's them what it is. I mean, Why I call a baby boomer a baby boomer? I mean, I understand. Not that, I, not that I've researched that, so I don't know the answer. I mean, I, yeah, I understand the, the 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 meaning behind the terms of baby boomer, Generation X, millennial, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's basically saying that these are, like you say, life cycle characteristics rather than characteristics of someone that's born in 1965 or 1975 or 1995. So the point is that people ascribe characteristics lazily to someone. They're like, okay, it's fine, you were born in 1982, so you must do this, you must do this. I don't know. I... Yeah. You make a good point there about lazily applying characteristics, that's true. I think what the difference is, if you're looking at context, is a, a really key thing. So somebody who was born in 1965 and somebody who was born in 1995 they will have different context how they've grown up um, in terms of what's going on socially and economically, world wars, you know, all sorts of different things going on with that. And I think that is a key differentiator. And that's why it's useful to have categories, although it is for sweeping statements. Um, but, you know, we've got to have some kind of label for some kind of category in order to, to be able to make decisions and to be able to understand people generally but it's not the same as understanding all people or individual stories true i think we're um this is like jerry's final thought coming up but i think we're uh, we're kind of agreeing the same thing but also the differences too i mean i i basically i feel like millennials is a word which people now use as a keyword in a headline mm. and it's a little bit patronizing and I also think it's very, very focused on the culture and economies of more developed countries, and which is why it can't relate to everyone who's born in 19, uh, 1977 onwards or 1982 onwards or whatever people decide it, the, the, the boundary is. To contradict this, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, uh, said that their algorithm ignores... Ge uh, geographical location which I find really really interesting because that completely contradicts what I've been saying about the fact that you know uh, someone who's 30 uh, and from Sierra Leone is going to be uh, will, ha will have a different relationship with technology than someone from California but that's not necessarily true and the fact that Netflix don't take these into account so it is more generalized around age groups is certainly interesting yeah. okay so that was LND on trial so for our next interview, I got a few minutes on the phone with Penny Asher, Director of Executive Education at the Open University Business School. 
We talked through uh, the findings or the results from a recent report that stated that two-fifths of organisations don't have a global strategy for learning. So we talk about learning and development at an international and uh, global level, also the impact that possibly the referendum might have had, and also, seeing as it's easier than ever to share, how come it's still so difficult? I've got a few questions about your research with the OU and various other things as well. I'll dive right in there. It could be said that businesses risk more isolation in the UK with the, the the recent referendum result. Is this true and what can we do to stop this? I think there's always a risk of that um, and the position we are with Brexit. I do think that we need to stop thinking ourselves uh, as just purely UK-based organisations. We are operating in a much bigger context and a number of our organisations are global and we need to think about it as a global organisation. We need to celebrate the diversity of our employee community and we need to try and connect people um, whether it's across the UK or across organisations um, and really demonstrate the value that everyone brings to that party. I, I think we need to stop looking just inwardly. Um, we need to be much more outward looking. It's very easy to just think inwardly but think about the broader context that our businesses are operating in. If we do operate across border or we have global supply chains or services, I think it's very important that we understand how people are creating the value across those supply chains or those services wherever they are, the interdependencies and the collaboration um, which are essential to create that value. So if not global, we can also bring in perspectives of stakeholders such as customers which might be outside the UK. We can bring in different faculty from a learning perspective. We can just bring in some of that diversity and reflect that that context that we're all operating in. So to talk uh, a bit more about um, collaborative learning, sharing information as well. In, in an age where it's easier than it's ever been to share information, why do you think companies are still finding sharing learning quite difficult? I think some information is easier than others to share. That's one point. Uh, you know, technical skills can be easier to to share. You can, you know, create videos these days uh, and make them readily available. Um, and you can have key experts that you can connect people to. I think throughout time we've always had the the question of the the woofum question, as I call it. So the what's in it for me question. And that can still be a difficult answer. Um, you know, time versus value. And we don't often, as organisations, make it easy um, to share learning and create that value from it. Uh, we don't have the technology that supports it in a lot of cases. You know, social learning management system, for example, you know, can make things much easier to access, much easier to find with the right curation. Uh, you can find the expertise if you signpost it. So um, I think it's a lot of we haven't necessarily created the environment where it is easy to share information and, you know, to support that, the learning culture where, where learning is valued and everyone wants to contribute and, and engage with it. To talk a bit more again about learning strategies, how can you, if you have an existing learning strategy, how can you make it more suitable for a global audience? I think it very much depends on the learning strategy, obviously, um, and therefore there can be a simple or relatively simple answer or there can be a much more complex answer. It could be that it's just about making more of different contexts, using different examples and case studies. You know, throughout time we've used GE as an example and that, that just doesn't fly anymore with a global audience. We need to be looking at, you know, some of the exciting stuff happening in China, some of the different companies and, and emerging markets that really we need to tap into. It could be bringing in diverse faculty 
and and connecting people globally and communities of practice. Um, so it, it, that that would be the more simple answer. Depending on the learning strategy, the more complex answer would be more again about you know recognizing that we are often siloed, whether it's the business that's siloed, the the politics that's that's behind it, and the organisation, um, and and indeed L and D can be siloed. So we need to recognise that there should be and that there often are you know core global skills and a curriculum that that we can create and develop as an L&D organization but recognize that there are almost always things that need to be locally created and adapted and the context and application of that learning across the globe you know more specific and local i also think technology can help with that again and uh, it's important to include that as part of a learning strategy and that makes it much more effective and and consistent across a global audience it can be if it's properly implemented so we're on to the last question uh, which is more forward thinking i guess it could be a new technology. It could be, it, it could be a, just a general trend within the industry. But what is exciting you particularly about the future of uh, learning and business? I think there are a couple of things. One is, I, I do think technology is yet to fulfil its promise. We have started using technology uh, in in a much better way, in my view, but it still doesn't necessarily deliver the impact that that it can. I think it will create in the future, and you know the the things that are not here yet in in the right way in terms of augmented reality or, or virtual reality. You know, I'd love to be able to deliver real new learning experience and immersive experiences that at the moment you'd have to travel to you know particular parts of the globe to experience, and that's obviously very expensive, but we should be able to do that much better in the future um, and, and I'm looking forward to that actually being much more cost effective. I think the other thing for me is is what I call a learning ecosystem. I think also technology is helping us, will help us create a true learning ecosystem where everybody is engaged. It's not just about high potential talent. We can reach everybody within our organisations. But also it, it's, you know, we can engage and create user content uh, we can curate we have access to information across the globe we're connecting the right people and and people are very much engaged with that and finally i think um that now that uh i think we have been worried over over a long time uh, about investing in learning and development for people because we're worried that we're going to lose our talent uh, they'll go and move on and, and that investment will be lost to a large degree but now it's becoming such a a norm for people to move on on a regular basis that it could be that we across businesses can start to collaborate and share learning it's not just individual businesses doing that we need to recognize that talent wherever it is is worth investing in at any time and I'd, i'd love to be able to see some businesses actually collaborating and investing in it in it together rather than just independently Great stuff. Well, Penny, uh, thanks a lot for chatting to TJ. Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, that's it for this month. No more arguing between me and John. We really hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it. John, tell us about next month. Okay, so the theme for next month is organisational development. Another packed issue for that. And we've got a lot more uh, interesting interviews coming up. Loads more stuff on the podcast and some uh, videos as well. So really looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Cheers.